Well, hello everybody who is listening in right now. Some of you are in person and welcome to you. Some of you are in person in the classic venue and welcome to you or in person on the Moon campus. Glad that you are with us or online. We're grateful for the fact that you are tuning in and, and checking this out. I know some of you are from a long, long distance away, and we're, we're glad to have you taking part. Whether far away, whether very near, good to be together. Today we are going to be thinking about hope. As, as specifically, we're going to be thinking about the hope for a better tomorrow. I think that's an appropriate thing for us to be thinking about because I think all of us are very much desiring something as, it, as we think about a better tomorrow. And there are a lot of different things that people will try to get themselves to a better tomorrow. For some people, they decide what I need to do is start in on some exercise. Some of you have probably made that decision or have thought, or thinking now maybe I should probably do that. Yeah, that would be, that would be a good one. Well, there is this one woman who was just in the news last week who made that decision for herself. And so the next time her friend went off to the gym, she went with her. And she was kind of just sort of scoping it out and seeing how everybody processed or how everybody did their exercises and what was available. And, and so she was trying to figure out what she wanted to do. And she, she saw the cyclers in their class and she saw the Zumba people doing their thing. And she thought, eh, none of that's for me. And something else is actually what piqued her interest. It was powerlifting. That's the thing that piqued her interest. And, and so she started to give that a try, and it turned out she was actually pretty good. And she entered competition. In the last competition she entered, she won. She just won this not all that long ago. And uh, she actually set a new world record in doing so. Now, you wouldn't have seen her in Tokyo at the Olympic Games because this particular power lifter that I'm talking about who just set this new world record she is a mother of five and a grandmother of 11 and a great-grandmother of 10 and a great-great-grandmother of two. Meet Edith Trena. This is Edith Trena, who just uh, won this competition that I was telling you about. She just turned 100 years old, and she is still a competitive power lifter. No one at her age has ever lifted more for a female. Of course, she hasn't had a lot of competition in that. Very few have outlived her, let alone outlifted her in, in, in the process. In fact, she actually entered uh, some regional games not far from where she lived, and she was very disappointed that they didn't have an age category that went up to her. <laughs> and what made that kind of surprising, maybe a little bit, is that it was the senior citizen games and they didn't anticipate that they would have anybody quite like her. Now, don't think that she's a slouch and it's just because she's old that she has won these things. Not at all. It's true that she doesn't have an intimidating powerlifter name. I mean, welcome to the powerlift stage, please, Edith, right? It doesn't strike fear in your heart necessarily, but she's got some skills. At this last one that she won, she actually powerlifted 150 pounds, Look at her. There she is right there. That's rather amazing to say the least. Edith's next power lifting competition, she says, oh, I'm going to keep going. Her next one's in November. She says, yeah, I'll probably win. And, and I suspect that she, she probably will win. And when she was asked, why did you take up power lifting? Because she took it up at age 91. 
She said, well, I just knew I needed some exercise and I needed to do something if I was going to prepare and take care of and provide for a better future for myself. And she's certainly right about that because achieving and arriving at a better future very rarely is something that just happens. It requires intentionality. It requires that we would do something with great design in order to move ourselves there in that way. Exercise can certainly be one of those steps, but there are a number of other things. As I think about, well, what would, what would I desire for a better future, for a better tomorrow? A number of other things. I think that most all of us would have a hope for a better tomorrow when it comes to peace in our world right? As we hear everything that's going on in places like Afghanistan, or peace in our, our nation, or maybe reconciliation in our communities. We would hope for a better tomorrow when it comes to COVID and all of the fallout that happens from COVID. That we would hope for a better tomorrow when it comes to other circumstances in our lives, when it comes to social issues, when it comes to moral code. And certainly, I think that for most of us, we would say, I'm also hoping for a better tomorrow when it comes to my own biblical righteousness, when it comes to my own spiritual walk. I don't think that anybody who is present, I certainly wouldn't, say that there's nowhere else to go, that I've, uh, that I've arrived, that, that my future, that my tomorrow is already secured as much as it can be in terms of my relationship with Jesus Christ. Because we all have room to grow. And I want us to just stop and, and process that for a moment. I want you to ask yourself the question, what is it that you would hope for in terms of your own walk with Christ as you think about what you would hope tomorrow would be? And the day after that, and the day after that. It's important that we would think about that as it relates to our church, because we have room to grow too. And the psalm that we're going to be looking at actually speaks in some corporate sense and looks at what the whole of the nation of Israel was doing. And it's right for us to process that as a, as a church, but also certainly to process that as individuals, because we as individuals are the ones who make up the church. Now, I probably don't need to convince you that there's some growth that is needed when it comes to biblical righteousness. What I might need to try to convince you of a little bit is that we can actually make progress, that we can actually see something transition, that we can see a better future actually achieved, because so often we might have something in mind, but we never really make the progress toward the goal. Well, we're not the first people to ponder this sort of issue and end up with some questions and, and doubts in our minds. The psalm that we're going to be looking at very much deals with this. It's a group of people who have been through circumstances that they have found to be very challenging, to say the least. And they've been left in a place where they're wondering if there really is any hope for their future. And if so, how is it that they're going to get there. And the place that we read about this and are the people that we're going to find, we'll find them in Psalm 85. In Psalm 85, so I would go ahead and invite you to turn there if you would please. Psalm 85. As the psalmist speaks to these issues in his own context, he seemed to know that he was dealing with some discouraged people who had had been through some hardship and opposition to the point where they've been left with 
doubt. So as this psalm gets started, he tries to bring some encouragement to, this, to the perspective of these people. And the way that he does it is to give them this challenge. It is to rejoice in the provision of the past. For your outline there, to rejoice in the provision of the past. The psalmist, who we're told here in the superscription, is one of the sons of Korah, begins with a look back at what's happened in the nation of Israel. Now last week we talked a bit about this. We looked at the nation of Israel and how their homeland was Jerusalem, how their temple was there in Jerusalem. We looked at Solomon's temple and we saw the significance of all of that, what it meant to them nationally, what it meant to them spiritually speaking. So it was devastating to them when King Nebuchadnezzar comes marching in with the armies of Babylon and defeats the city, destroys the city, destroys the temple, and carries off, deports almost all of the Jews off into exile. Now, it shouldn't have come as a huge surprise to the Israelites that this was happening to them. They processed it as a surprise, but as they stopped to think about it, they would have known that this is probably a likelihood that was going to happen to them because they made themselves vulnerable to attack and to exile. The people were living outside of the will of God. They were discarding and, and disinterested in fulfilling the Lord's purposes. They said, yeah, sure, we're following after God. We are His chosen people and all of that, but the way that they were living was out of covenant with the, with the covenant that God had made together with them. They're choosing their own way. They're walking off on their own desires, and it shouldn't come as any big surprise to them that finally the reckoning has come for them. God sends prophets to them to warn them, to try to call them back, and they basically thumb their nose at the prophets, and through doing so, thumb their nose at, at God and said, we're going to do our own Thing, but eventually sin caught up with them. See, the people had become complacent, which is an easy thing to do, especially when God's blessing and His provision has been so consistent in our lives. And it has been. God provides for us. Even in times when you've been disobedient, you have experienced the provision and the blessing of God. Am I not right? You have. And when we see that over and over again, what that, what that potentially can lead us to is this idea that, well, I can live however I choose to live, and I'm still going to experience the goodness and the blessing of God. And so we sort of start walking off in that direction. But eventually the reckoning comes, and God brings or allows some challenge to come into our life. Why? To get our attention so that He might arrest our movement down toward our own demise. And moving toward our own destruction, it's out of His love and His mercy and His grace that He steps in. Oftentimes we don't see it as that. We consider it to be something different altogether, but it's the grace of God that says, I'm not going to allow you to continue to walk away from me to your own destruction. So even though it shouldn't have been a surprise for Israel that hardship was on their doorstep, it's exceedingly challenging to them when it comes. And you can read about it in a number of places in the Old Testament. You can go to the history books there, and you can read that. You can go to the prophets. Jeremiah was carrying on his ministry during this very time of, of leading up to and including the Babylonian exile. You've got Ezekiel who's ministering at the same time. You've got Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, those people that uh, if you were in Sunday school growing up that you heard all about those three Hebrews in the fiery furnace, that's going on at this time. They're appearing there before Nebuchadnezzar, and he's the king who is in charge at this time. This, these are all contemporary things that are going on 
right here. So the people were living in this exile, but God in His grace wasn't going to always keep them away from this promised land that He had given to them. He gives them a promise that I'm going to bring you back. In fact, one of Jeremiah's prophecies is that it's going to last for 70 years, this exile, and then I'm going to bring you back into the land. In fact, there's a little nugget that you can take and you can tuck away. You can write it in the margin of your Bible. You can tuck away in your brain, however you want to do it. But there's a very familiar, popular verse that appears in Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. And most of you are going to recognize it when you hear it. It's this. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Many of you are very familiar with that. What you might not be as familiar with is the context that this comes in. Guess what the very verse right before, this is verse 11, verse 10 says this. Look at it. It says, This is what the Lord says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. It is this circumstance right here that Jeremiah 29, 11 is actually talking about. So whenever you quote that in some other context, at least remember where it actually comes from, that this is a promise that God is giving to the people that I'm going to bring you back. After this horrible time of 70 years of exile, I'm going to provide for you because I know the plans I have for you, and it's plans for a future. It's plans for a hope. That's what's going on here. So, Jeremiah here has prophesied this, and it has now come true, and the people have returned to the homeland. And so we come to Psalm 85, and what that is is the psalmist reflecting on those circumstances. Psalm 85 is written following the return of the people to the land and the establishment, the setting up of what's life going to be like now. What's our relationship with God going to look like now? So with that in our minds, let's go ahead and take a look at Psalm 85. It helps to, I hope, give you a bit of context and a bit of underpinning and foundation to pin all of the rest of what we see here on. So let's look at it. Verse 1 of Psalm 85 says, You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You can just sort of picture this. Yes, you brought us back now into the land. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You took care of those things that, that, that forced you to carry us off into exile or send us off. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. There's no doubt that the people here are feeling the effects of walking away from God. This almost says it was like wrath. It was like your anger was there standing against us as we left our own land. The grace of the presence of God is so amazing and sweet and full that whenever God might lift it away from us, whenever He might pull that back, it feels like something that's very bitter, that is something that leaves us very empty. Then we're tempted to blame that on God for abandoning us and making our lives miserable when we would do well to recognize that the Lord never went anywhere. We're the ones who turned our backs on 
Him. Now, the psalmist begins this way as an encouragement to the people to remember and to rejoice. He wants them to keep in mind the many things that the Lord had done for them in the past. And because of all the Lord had done for them in the past, it sets them up in a position, in a mindset, in a frame of mind, if they'll remember that, if they'll rejoice in that, to set them up when the dark days are going to come for the future. And even though they've come now back into the land, it doesn't mean that they're done with dark days, with challenging days, because they're going to going to continue to fail God. They're going to continue to fail in living up to the covenant that God had established together with them. Troubles are going to come. They are going to be in a circumstance where they might say to themselves, do we really have a future? Do we really have a hope here in this land? Because we know what's happened in the past. We know we've fallen away and we know the circumstance, the difficulty of the exile. And if that's going to be our lives, remember for them, they don't have the picture of of everything for their own personal experience. Maybe some of them... We're born in the land. We're born into exile. And it's like, this is all we've known. God's like, there's a hope. There's every reason for you to find encouragement for the future because you can look back on what the Lord has done for you or for the nation over through time. This is a very vital lesson for all the rest of us as well. Rejoicing in God's provision in your past can also inspire hope and confidence in your present situation. Just learning this lesson from them, we might say it something like this, sort of as a principle or as a priority. We might uh, say it like this. We can bring that up on the screen. That regardless of what the circumstances of your life appear to be, God is always up to good. Regardless of what the circumstances of your life, my friends, appear to be, God is always up to good. He's working towards something good in your life right now. Whatever it is that's going on, the thing that has you troubled, the, things that ha- the thing that has you worried, the thing that has you fretting, the circumstance in your life or the life of your child or the life of your parent or whomever it might happen to be, God is present. God is with us. God has never deserted us. He didn't desert the Israelites for the 70 years that they lived in exile. He was with them, and He ultimately pr- promised the return for them, to sustain the nation, to continue to bring it back into the promised land, and He perfectly fulfilled that. In our looking back on the things that God has done for us, what has God done for you? How has He provided for you? For many of you, you could raise your hand and say, well, salvation for one thing, bringing us out of darkness and into the light. It's a great blessing to be Sure, and he's reminding that of them, uh, them of that to instill confidence in them that they would do the sole work that is necessary to not give up, to not say, "I don't know if the future is even going to work, so why should I put in all of the effort to try to get there spiritually?" He says it's worth the effort. It was for them, it is for us. So he goes on then to say to rejoice in the provision of the past and next to return for renewal in the present says, yes, you need to be focused in on where you are and, and what the move forward would be like. When it comes to making a commitment to walk in fellowship with the Lord, it's not just this sort of one-and-done endeavor that we just do it and then we consider it to be taken care of. Though for many of us, that's exactly the way that we've processed it. And so we had some circumstance. For most of us, it's coming to Christ. We had this sort of epiphany, this this, uh, enlightenment that we knew this is something that God is leading me to. And we walk into fellowship with God and we're on this mountaintop experience. And it's beautiful and it's great and it should be all of that. But then for many, we start to sweep 
our way down and off of that mountain, and we find ourselves now in this valley, this dry valley, where we're really not feeling that closeness or that intimacy with God, and we sort of exist there for a long time until something happens in our life that eventually takes us back up onto the mountaintop. So there's this peak of commitment, followed by a long time in the valley, followed finally again by this commitment, this peak that comes one more time, and because it's not a pattern that we have established to be walking in faith with Christ, we hit the peak, but then it's not very long at all before we fall off of it, and the next thing you know, we're back in the valley for an extended period of time. What is better, the better approach is to find your renewal and then keep it fresh day by day with just just basic steps of faithfulness and righteousness and walking with God and, and doing the little things. Not insisting on having mountaintop experiences day by day. You cannot sustain that. But just having common, constant faithfulness, helping you to walk your way along. Think about it in relationship to food in that realm. Imagine that you could only eat one meal a week. But for that meal, you could eat whatever you wanted. You could gorge yourself, eat as much as you wanted, whatever you wanted. For you, that might be steak and, and pizza and ice cream and Fruit Loops. I don't know. Whatever you wanted, you have the freedom to go ahead and do that. And you can gorge yourself that one meal a week, but you only get that one meal for that week. Or, on the flip side, you could have a healthy, balanced three meals a day every day. Which one of those would you choose? You can't take the hybrid and have gorging yourself for three meals a day. That one's not an option for you, right? So, so which of those do you think that you would choose? My guess is that you could probably survive either way for a time, but only one of the options is going to lead you to a place where you'll thrive. And it's the same way in our spiritual walk. So many of us try to live by that former plan where we're trying to gorge ourselves when we are finally in a place where we're feeling a closeness to God. We hit the mountaintop and it's like, I want everything. But then we hit the valley and we're stuck there for long periods of time because we allow ourselves to because we haven't been willing to just eat the balanced, healthy diet of the righteousness of God, of the spiritual disciplines to walk us along so that we don't crash into the valley, but that we just stay in fellowship and in relationship with God. That's what the psalmist is desiring for the people because he knows that those extended times in the valley can be deadly. And that's what's all too evident. It was all too evident for the people leading up to and including their deportation into exile there in Babylon. The psalmist wants to spare them making that same error. So he says, verse 4, look at it. He says, Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not receive or revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. 
Even though circumstances have been bad in Babylon, the psalmist has never questioned. Did you see it there in verse 7? Show us your unfailing love. The, the, the psalmist isn't questioning the love of the Lord for the people. And now he's praying for a revival and a renewal in the hearts of the nation that would keep them from ever going down that path again. Because he knows that just because there's a geographic return that's happening for them, that does not mean that there's automatically going to be a spiritual return that goes on for them. But for many of them, that's exactly what they would have thought was coming, because they're coming back into their homeland. They're coming back into their city where they know that that's where the temple was, and they've had so many wonderful experiences on the holy days and on the feast days and going to Jerusalem and on the festival days, going and celebrating there. But the changes that they really needed weren't circumstances, but hearts that had to be transformed. That's why the psalmist is calling for revival and renewal here, which is a great and helpful word for us. See, it's easy to allow externals to become the substance of our spiritual lives. Externals to become the substance. We can make a good show of it, but our hearts aren't necessarily engaged. And here's the crazy thing about that. We can actually fool ourselves in this regard. We can trick ourselves. We can do that without even realizing it. It's possible that we would get to the place where we would know how we're supposed to act. We know where we're supposed to go. We know what we're supposed to say. And so we enter into life in that way, and it just sort of becomes who we are. It's not even necessarily that we've been trying to, to trick other people or trying to deceive other people into thinking that we're something that we're not. We just sort of go there. Because we've been around long enough that, well, that's just what people do. And before we know it, we're doing those things, we're going those places, and that is now the thing that has become the essence of our spiritual walk, is being those places, doing those things, entering into those circumstances. And so pretty soon we start to actually fool ourselves to believe that that's what the substance of it all is about. And that's not it at all. It's about what's going on inside, internally, that is important here. And that's the problem. Even if you're not actively trying to deceive other people, you're actively deceiving yourself. The externals have become the essence of what your spiritual life consists of. You wouldn't call it vibrant, but there's something there. And you show up in places, you show up at church, and something happens, and it, and it feels pretty good, and it's like, well, I, I think God was there, and, and I met Him there. See, none of it is sort of this, sometimes you talk to people, and it's like they're describing for you this abundant life that they're experiencing in Christ, and it's like, that's fantastic, and then you're like on your own, and it's like, is that what I'm experiencing? Is that what my spiritual walk is? Because it doesn't really feel like abundant life feels like something, and so we start to, well, maybe I can just chalk that up to, to they just have a different background than I have, or, or they have a different personality than I have. And so maybe that's the thing that's different. It just looks different on them. But how do you process this? Does any of this kind of sound familiar? Do you ever walk through times when you're wondering, Am I really at the place of, of spiritual abundance? Have I really experienced? Is this really the fullness of what God has for me? Is there not really something more? Because it feels, it feels okay, but it cer certainly doesn't feel dialed in. 
It doesn't feel moment to moment. It feels more just peak to valley to peak to valley to peak to valley. Is this really all the more that there is? See, this psalm isn't about just presenting a committed life. It's about living one. And that has to start with revival. It's about developing a a spiritual life that's characterized first and foremost by this one-on-one relationship that we have with God. It's about finding intimacy with Christ in the prayerful stillness of a quiet room and a heart connection to the Savior. Yet for many people, the substance of the spiritual walk is about attending something or going somewhere or gathering with a bunch of people somewhere. That's kind of the extent of it. Now, there's nothing wrong with gathering. In fact, that's absolutely essential, and that's absolutely important because there's so many things that can't happen until we do gather together. But if that's the essence of who you are spiritually, you experience God when you're only together with other people and there's nothing that's going on really individually, one-on-one between you and God that sort of leads the way and, and defines who you are spiritually, then that's a red flag. And if that's a red flag that's waving in your life today, the psalmist is inviting you into renewal that's personal and, and intimate. You can be here every week and still need personal renewal. You can volunteer here. You can teach here. You can preach here and still find yourself at times in places where you need this spiritual renewal. So how do you find it? Well, you find it through intimacy. You find it through engaging personally with God. Not corporately with God. That's important. That's got a place. Not just corporately with other people but individually. So ask yourself, what is the nature that drives the relationship or drives the experience that you have with God? Is it relationship one-on-one? Or is it a feeling that comes every once in a while when you show up at church or you show up in your small group? This is so vitally important. How do you get there? One-on-one. Prayer. Absolutely talking to God. That's a one-on-one relationship. Journaling. You might say, well, I'm not a writer. Try audio journaling. You just have to to speak your thoughts. Your phone has a voice memo feature on it. You've never found it? Find it. Do some audio journaling. Or take the spirit of the Psalms. I love the Psalms. They speak to real life right where we are. Maybe some days it's going to be praise you feel like telling God. Some days it's going to be thanksgiving. Some days it's going to be lament. You're going to be calling out to God. God, why? He loves that sort of engagement with you. Because finally you're getting down to the heart of the matter. He's calling us here to a renewal that transforms and revives And that's what he's saying to these people who've been in exile, who are now coming back. I don't want you to make the same mistake again. So, return for renewal for the present. And then there's one final step toward a better tomorrow. Finding the psalm, and it's to rely on God's promises for the future. We've got a past and a present and a future circumstance here. Right away, the psalmist, as it goes on, demonstrates the posture that's going to bring this sort of renewal. 
this sort of change of life. In verse 8, he says, I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to His people, His faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely His salvation is near those who fear Him, that His glory may dwell in our land. The psalmist here is showing a humble and contrite spirit and the readiness to listen to what the Lord has to say. This is very much the opposite of what led the people, what led the nation into their demise. This is a different approach that we see them taking. They are now listening. Friends, you can't walk closely with the Lord if you're not listening. Yet we have trouble listening. We have trouble getting ourselves to the place where our spirit is stilled to the point where we can actually hear what God is saying. We're always on the move. We might be happy to to talk, to speak to God, maybe to share, but to stop and actually listen to try to hear from God and understand what it is that He's trying to tell us and lead us toward can be so very difficult. Then with a growing confidence, we find description of the Lord's attributes being provided freely here for those who are returning to the land. Verse 10 says, love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before Him and prepares the way for His steps. The beauty of these verses is the activity of God. That verse 12 again, we just read it, but let me show it to you one more time. The Lord will indeed give what is good. And what is good are these attributes of God that He says, I'm pouring out on you love and faithfulness righteousness, and peace being bestowed upon you. See, this is not a new decision or activity that God's like, all right, you got to the end of the psalm. I hear what you're saying. All right, fine. I'll go ahead and give you love and faithfulness and righteousness and peace. This is not God at the end of 70 years of exile saying, all right, fine. I'll go ahead and be nice to you again. I'll go ahead and give you love and faithfulness and righteousness and peace. It's been available all the way along. The difference is that they're finally ready to listen. They're finally ready to engage. They're finally ready to receive. In the same way, God is not hiding anything from you. God's not hiding anything from me. Even though there are times when it seems like God might be distant, It's not that he's turned his back on you. It's probably more likely that you've turned your back on him. All of this goodness, this righteousness, this love, this peace is right available for us, waiting to be explored and enjoyed. And when we move toward it, when we explore it and experience it, it gives us hope for a better tomorrow. It's the very thing that is necessary so that we might be able to break out of whatever malaise spiritually that we've been in and move our way forward. We all get there at times. The question is, how do I get past it? How do I get out of it without having to experience my own exile, as it were, 
my own separation from God. And so the psalmist tells us to rejoice in what God has done is a reminder of of His love for you and His desire for you. To return and, and to be renewed and then to be restored for that future that He longs for for us. I know that all of us get to this place where we need this better tomorrow. Psalm 85 tells us how to find it. Find it. So friends, let us walk in it. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness, for your kindness, for your love, for the grace that you bestow. bestow. We, we look in this psalm and we see a people who have found a separation and experienced a separation from you. They have made choices which have led them to places where they have experienced an exile. And Lord, while we will probably never be exiled from our homes and from our lands, there is a spiritual exile that can happen. The separation that we allow to happen. So Lord, today we come with the psalmist and we ask that you would renew us. That you would give us the perspective to recognize that you've been there all along and that your goodness in the past is something that we can look on. It's something that we can rejoice in. It's something that we can be renewed by. And so Lord, our prayer today is that we would not just have the hope of a better tomorrow, but that we would do the heart work that takes us to the place of experiencing that better tomorrow. And to get there, the psalmist says, the psalmist cries out, Lord, revive us. Restore us. Renew us. Make it so that we don't ever have to experience the exile and the separation that we've been going through. It's been so painful and so difficult. And Lord, for us who are here, we've had times when we've allowed the exile to continue, to go on and on because we haven't been willing to just arrest that movement and, and draw a line in the sand and say, no, from now on, I'm moving toward you. I'm going to listen. I'm going to focus in on a relationship with you. Not the externals of, of walking a, a walk with other people, of, of engaging in places, of going to gatherings, but I'm going to this moment focus my heart and my mind and my life on the relationship that you came to establish with me. So Lord, our prayer today that you'd speak to us, that we would listen, that we would hear, and for whatever needs to be done in our hearts, that you would revive us and draw us in and make us new. Lord, that is our prayer. That is our hope. That is our commitment. In the name of Christ, amen.
Lord God, we thank you for your spirit that revives our hearts, that revives our lives. We thank you, Lord, for moving in our midst, for refreshing our souls, for renewing our minds. Lord, we pray that you would give us the confidence to know that you are right beside us and that you go before us. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness that never ceases. We thank you that your promises never fail. Lord, go before us now. Help us to seek you with all of who we are. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. As Pastor Jeff concluded, God isn't hiding from any of us. If you want to know him, if you want a relationship with him, he wants that too, and it's absolutely available. If you haven't found it or you're having a hard time maintaining that relationship, perhaps it's because you're not ready or you're not in a position right now to receive it. But as Jesus states in Matthew chapter 7, 7 through 8, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. As we've learned today, God is generous with giving us hope and the hope of his abundance in our lives. I encourage you to ask, seek, and knock for it today. Have a fantastic week, and we'll see you back here next Sunday.